0: and happy 1st of December. I'm so pleased that you've decided to listen to today's episode. But before I get started with this month's interview, I just wanted to provide a quick update on the podcast. This will unfortunately be the last episode for just a little while. It's been a crazy season of applications, the start of my new fellowship in Rome, and trying to turn my PhD thesis into a book. So for that reason, I'll need to take a brief respite from the interviews and from the editing just to get a better handle on my own workload but I do hope to be back soon, and I already have lots of people who are interested in sharing their research on future episodes. That being said, I'm very excited to bring you today's episode, which focuses on material culture in the TV series Outlander. Please note that this episode may contain spoilers if you haven't seen all of the series yet, and there are some mentions of sexual violence in relation to this show. I hope you enjoy. On today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Madeline Pelling and Dr. Rosie Wayne. Maddie is an art historian specializing in 18th century Britain. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Edinburgh, having completed her PhD in 2018 at the University of York. Her research focuses on material and visual culture in the 18th century, with a focus on four key sites the collected and found object, the manuscript, the inscribed surface, and the cinematic screen. Maddie is currently preparing a monograph based on her PhD thesis and is developing two further projects, one on 18th century women and the material turn in British historiography, and another on graffiti and inscription. Rosie is a material culture historian and a museum professional, specializing in 18th century textiles and dress. She is the William Grant Foundation Research Fellow at National Museum Scotland, where she has been working to survey and reinterpret the museum's vast collection of tartan and Highland dress since 2018. Her PhD from the University of Southampton explored the material culture of rebellious nationhood in 18th century Britain and America. She is currently preparing a new fashion history of Highland dress based on the holdings of National Museum Scotland, which will be published in 2022. Thanks so much, Maddie and Rosie, for joining today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. So today you're both here to talk to us about your research into the material culture of the TV series Outlander. So for those viewers who may not have watched the TV series, could you explain the premise of the show and tell us why it's such an interesting case study for historians of art and material culture? Sure, I'll get going on this.
1: So Outlander is an adaptation of a series of books by Diana Gabaldon. The heart of the narrative is a love story between Claire, a 20th century former combat nurse thrown back in time to 1740 Scotland by a circle of standing stones, and uh, Jamie Fraser, an 18th century Highlander who she meets and later marries. The show, like the books it is based on, is not easy to define in terms of genre, being a historical fiction with significant romance, fantasy, and action-adventure themes. Across its five seasons, the show follows Claire and Jamie's love story back and forth through time and space, from the highlands of Scotland during the last Jacobite Rebellion to pre-revolutionary France, to 1960s Boston, to the colonial Caribbean, and most recently to the backcountry settlements of North Carolina in the 1770s.
2: So I guess in terms of why the show um, is of interest to historians of material culture like us... Um, is that Outlander is we think fairly unusual um, because it's a show that moves between different time periods um, but also because it obviously encompasses some magical elements so there isn't necessarily uh, I guess the same requirement or at least the same expectation for um, accuracy that we might find in something like uh, you know an on-screen adaptation of a Dickens or an Austin so it has a bit more freedom to play around with the material culture and in fact um, objects are made Really highly visible on screen and signaled as these hugely important things within the story. Um, so, for example, at the beginning of every episode of Outlander, uh, just before the opening theme, we see what's called um, a title card. So this is sort of like a still life uh, or a vignette that features uh, like sl- sort of slow panning shots or close up shots of specific objects. So things like a loaded pistol or a horse's bridle or um, a medicine bottle. And what the show does through this is to tell its audience that a particular object will be central um, to a moment in the episode or the story more generally. So this isn't simply a way of dressing the set or establishing the feeling of a particular time period. Um, Instead, Outlander's objects are agents actually within the story. So they're key to various romances. Um, They're the ways of measuring time itself um, and things like genealogies and familial connections but they can also be the catalyst for violence um, within the Outlander world, and particularly sexual violence. So they take on real power within the internal logic of the Outlander world. Um, But this centrality also raises questions sort of outside of the show itself about how these objects are made in production, um, what real life inspiration they're drawing on, and also how fans, I guess, look to replicate and experience them. So that's something that we're kind of working on at the moment.
0: Thanks so much, Maddie. As you just mentioned there in the introduction to each show, we often see quite a few objects that appear. And so as a visual representation of the past, Outlander includes many objects on screen. And these often have multiple layers of meaning, such as weaponry, clothing and jewelry. Could you tell us a bit more about the role that these objects play in Outlander, both for the characters themselves and then for modern audiences? Sure. Um... Well, as I've kind of mentioned already
2: uh, in Outlander, the the objects can take on these sort of complex layers of meaning, be that romantic, cultural, uh, political. Uh, And I know Rosie's going to go on uh, to talk about the sort of Scottish question at the heart of Outlander. (laughs) Um, But within the world of the show, the characters read objects in a number of different ways. So one of the obvious um, things is the gifting of heirlooms. So we have things like um, the string of pearls that Claire inherits from Jamie's mother, um, the wooden snake that Jamie makes for his son, uh, and the various gifts that are given to Brianna and Roger's child, uh, Jemmy. But also in a show that deals with you know shifts in time and movement between these really distinct chronologies, objects become open to these sort of more interesting and complicated treatments. So one of my favourite um, examples is the 18th century cutthroat razor um, that belongs to Claire's first husband, Frank, in the 1940s. And he he's, tells Claire that he's used it um, during his service in World War II and that it's a family heirloom that used to belong to his ancestor, Black Jack Rand- Randall, um, about whom he kind of has these, these sort of fantasies. He's a historian and he turns... You know his sort of academic training to his own family and he's interested in tracing this genealogy while they're in Scotland. Um, But when Claire actually slips back into the 18th century and she meets Randall um, in person, she finds out that he's in fact, you know, he's the villain of the piece. He's a real monster. And so the razor takes on this like very, very sinister quality uh, when it's used in a scene um, where she's being interrogated by Randall in a British officer's mess. And what this does on a sort of like, you know, a basic level is to draw attention to the obvious difference between Frank and Randall um, and they're played by the same uh, actor. So, you know, just to sort of underscore that comparison. Um, But it also really, really crucially speaks to the the audience. And it reminds us that, you know, it's like the sort of famous uh, Robert Frost saying that the past is a foreign country and that the stories and I guess the personalities that we attach to certain objects might actually have been very, very different. Um, So another great example of Outlander playing around with time and materials is in uh, a lot of the costuming, um, which regularly sort of comes under fire for its inaccuracies. But I think this is something we're going to kind of address in more in more detail. But for us, uh, accuracy isn't really um, the main focus of what we're doing. Um, but there's a, there's a really great early scene um, where the cook at uh, Castle Leoc, Mrs. Um, Fitgibbons, I think, she undresses Claire and she strips away um, her 18th century underwear in order to, you know, replace it with these 18th century counterparts. And she's the sort of joke is that she's shocked by the relative sparsity of Claire's clothing, uh, which leads Claire, who you know, is at, at a total loss to explain her slippage through time. Uh, she justifies them as having been bought in Paris, which of course is sort of true. She was a combat nurse there during the Second World War. So it's a sort of nice moment where the audience shares this joke with Claire. Um, And then later on, there's a scene that emphasises the sort of the malleability of materials, where Claire repurposes clothing from uh, the 1960s in Boston in order to make an 18th century dress when she goes back in time to find Jamie. Uh, and there's this lovely moment later on in the same series where it's a bedroom scene between Claire and Jamie. Uh, and she has to explain to him how to use the zipper on her dress. And so there's this sort of exploration of characters, you know, and audiences um, to, you know, to borrow a, a term pioneered uh, recently by uh, Serena Dyer and Chloe Smith, the sort of the material literacy of both characters and
0: audiences. And just turning over to Rosie, I'm wondering if you might share as well why you think that these objects in Outlander have such an appeal for modern audiences.
1: I think part of Outlander's appeal to a modern audience is its use of highly recognisable Scottish iconography, so things which are still within the purview of 21st century audiences, but which have their roots in the 18th century. I think the material culture of clanship and its connection with wider Scottish communities is used at every opportunity throughout the show, but it's also it's used with a nod towards romanticism, that sort of S-S-S- Walter Scottian Waverley romanticism. So you see a lot of uh, clan mottos, um, the wearing of, of tartans. It's not exactly clan tartans because they're not that sort of flaming uh, red, blues and greens that you see from the Victorian period, but they are uniform uh, tartans. And we also see things like the sealing of oaths with the drinking of whiskey from Quake's things which is still done at scottish weddings today and we also see things like the hunting of bulls with the um, with those large targes you know the shields um, which are part of the warrior iconography of the highlander as well as the hunting iconography of the highlander so these are all things which the modern audience in scotland recognizes because they're traditions which have uh, carried on and have been incorporated into today's their their material literacy, to to go back to what Maddie was saying. So I think that's one of the ways in which the show is most successful in, in appealing to a modern audience.
0: I'd like to move on to the representation of Scotland and its history in Outlander. I know that Maddie mentioned earlier that historical accuracy isn't the focus of your research, but I am wondering if you think the show accurately portrays the past was there any consultation that you know of between producers of the show and those in the heritage sector, for instance, regarding the construction of this historical narrative?
1: So as you say, for us, debates of historical accuracy or inaccuracy in the show aren't at the front for, forefront of our analysis of it, but we've we have been struck by how central the question of authenticity, is to most academics in their approach to period dramas and the determining of their worth. So using historical accuracy as a metric um, for how good the show is. So we have found that quite interesting. But from our perspective, what's important to recognise and engage with on a critical level is that Outlander sits at the intersection of many difficult and contentious areas of study in Scottish history. So Seasons 1 and 2 deal explicitly with Jacobitism and the place of Scotland within that, as well as the position of Scots within the Union with Britain. And later series look at forced displacement or just general migration from Scotland to the Americas and the forming of what could be called today a Scottish diaspora. So all of these issues are are really interesting to see displayed on screen. And as Maddie and I have discussed before, it's kind of one of the, f- the first times in the 21st century that these kind of historical narratives, these Scottish historical narratives are being portrayed on screen for a popular audience as for the second part of the question, as I haven't worked as a historical advisor and outlander, I don't know who else has, um, but I know that the show does engage with objects from the museum's national collection. One of the most overt ways it has done this is at the end of season two, when we are shown Bonnie Prince Charlie's Travelling Canteen, which is a beautiful silver canteen that is part of the National Museum of Scotland's collection of Jacobite objects. And this canteen appears on screen for just a mere moments really it's i think the second to last episode of season two bonnie prince charlie is stood at the edge of clodden with his attendants around him and he holds up the canteen and says oh, from the duke of cumberland will drink from this um when this day is done so he's using this real replica of a real object which is connected to that real person's Um, past at a moment to say I will win Culloden my history will be glorious and then the next time we see the canteen it's being showered with with mud from the cannons um, which are then firing and we see Bonnie Prince Charlie's face and it's just completely defeated and he knows that he will not have that glorious history but for the audience they knew the whole time that He was never going to achieve that history, but the show has made a really interesting choice to incorporate a real historical object in that moment, almost to give that moment some historical authenticity, some validity for the people who are aware of that material culture and know of its uh, significance. So it's something that Outlander has done Multiple times, I think, throughout the seasons, is making reference to to real material culture or to real visual culture to lend itself an air of authenticity, which some of its viewers, particularly its academic viewers, feel it doesn't really have. Uh, Maddie, I don't know if you want to jump in here. I
2: just wanted, to, yeah, to add to that actually. That I mean, there's something really interesting going on there, isn't there? About the power of real historical artifact. Mm-hmm. um or you know, perceived real historical artifacts and particularly around Bonnie Prince Charlie right that this the material culture around him um there's a lot of stuff like fakes and forgeries and that the worth of an object um goes up considerably if you can link it to Bonnie Prince Charlie
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and i think there's there's something fascinating about the show replicating um that particular object and i know that the um the actor who played Bonnie Prince Charlie in Outlander did go and visit the object in the museum um, setting. So there's a kind of an idea that accessing these original artifacts somehow bring historical characters and historical figures to life. Um, But also, and this is something that we've been coming back to again and again in our work, and it's something I think we'll probably discuss here a bit later on, is this idea that not only is Outlander sort of imitating or depicting historic Scotland on screen, but it's actually adding to the material culture of Scotland now. So in replicating that canteen, there are now two silver canteens (laughs) that exist in the world. Um, And so, you know, that's a really fascinating expansion of the the sort of historic canon of objects. Um, And whilst they're not trying to pass it off as the real thing, I think there's something really fascinating about, about the sort of process of replicating and the, the question arises then about where does the power sit in these objects? Is it in the fact that they've been physically um, in proximity to real historic figures? Um, Or, you know, is it just that they can be that they hold some power that we
0: as modern audiences can, can access and sort of replicate now. Mm -hmm. So just to move a little bit away from Scotland for the moment, some people have argued that Outlander as a TV series is fundamentally feminist I'm wondering if you could give us your thoughts on how the material culture and the objects within the show tend to support this feminist narrative. Yeah, sure. So there's a really um, fantastic essay
2: um, by Carol Donnellan and she talks about how, you know, at its heart, Outlander is a feminist tale, but it's also about disappearances. So that's, you know, the disappearance of its main female character, but also of Scottish and specifically, I guess, Highland cultures. Um, and something that we've been thinking about is within this sort of framing of the show about loss and and disappearance, that material culture is absolutely at the forefront. It's always present on screen, um, often as a way to signal loss or to make those losses more poignant, actually. Um, so one thing that we see a lot throughout the show is the sort of the, the recycling of objects that have been used in um scenes specifically to do with um so, you know, sort of exploring masculinity um and at, you know material culture specifically in the show i should say is it really works to explore heteronormative gender roles and to um sort of challenge them and reframe them so the objects that get recycled they they're often things that appear in these scenes to do with masculinity um, and that sort of later get reused as a way to sort of question ideas about patriarchy and power. So one of the most prominent examples of this is in season one, uh, when Jamie takes a dirk, so um, a, a, a blade that is now just um, used for ceremonial purposes, but would have a ceremonial and a practical use in the 18th century. Um, so he, t- he takes the dirk that he has refused to pledge um, to the laird at Castle Leoc during the clan gathering. And instead he uses the same blade to pledge his loyalty to Claire. Um, And this is something that we see uh, sort of again and again, really. So um, when Claire is gifted some armbands that are made from um, the tusks of a wild boar that Myrta has killed during a historic clan gathering, um, on the surface, these objects, you know, are seemingly to do with Myrta's hunting prowess uh, and his masculinity, but then he reveals to Claire that he, in fact, gave these objects once they're in once they've been made into jewelry uh, as a romantic gift to uh, an unsuccessful romantic gift i should say <laughs> uh, to Jamie's mother um and they take on this you know sort of extra intimate layer of meaning that's akin to Jamie's pledge to Claire this sort of you know in which a an object of supposed male virility um is offered deferentially to a woman uh, and also of course these the the tusks bands in particular actually um, become part of a, a sort of series of objects uh, that Claire inherits from uh, Jamie's deceased and, you know, a deceased mother who's absent throughout the whole show. Uh, and they become part of the show's interest in tracing sort of matriarchal genealogies. So there's sort of these lines of inheritance and lineage that are expressed um, that sort of connect different women in the show and not necessarily uh, biologically related women, but that are expressed very much. Um, in material form
1: yeah I think for me the show is very progressive like you say you say Maddy in sort of subverting masculine objects to bring them into a more feminine or feminized narrative Um, and I think I'd like to talk just just really briefly about how this is done in Jamie's costume in particular so Jamie like the you know archetypal Highland warrior is always sort of dressed head to toe in in tartan, um, in the typical Highland dress, and part of that is the wearing of a sporran. So, for those who don't know, sporran is a typically during this period a leather pouch which is worn from a, ba- a belt at the waist, uh, usually with a, a kilt. And there's sort of this tradition around sporrans that they are the you know the secret most private place. For a Highlander to hide his most treasured possessions, and this is a something which the show continually comes back to in the case of Jamie. So his sporran contains many things which speak to his past, which speak to his emotional connections, um, and you only see it sort of opened at at moments of particular significance for him. So, for instance, uh, the key to Lallybrock is in his sparring and the key for Lallybrock is used to make his wedding ring for Claire. And later in the season when he is uh, captured and he is, um, arrested and he's uh, imprisoned at Fort William all the contents of his sporran all get tipped out and put into a, a box that is kept by the prison warden and are shown to Claire in this moment. And it feels quite revealing. It, it, it's sort of like a stripping away um, of all of Jamie's sort of protection. And that's something which the show continues to come back to again and again, particularly later in that season when um, Jamie is is stripped of his kilt by Black Jack Randall before his assault. It's this moment of, of all of that very masculine, very hyper-masculine clothing and everything it represents just being, you know, torn down. And that I find that quite progressive in a show like this. Um, it's also which...
2: interesting, Rosie, that you say about, you know, that these these material objects are central in moments of, of violence and particularly um, sexual violence. So, mm-hmm. um you know, not only um, is Jamie sort of stripped of the the materials that are part of his identity as a Highlander, as a man, as a husband and all the rest of it, but um, there are other objects that appear in these sort of pivotal moments. So thinking in particular about um, the lally brock key that gets melted into, um, into a, a wedding ring for Claire, which in itself is a sort of, uh, you know, a, a deferential... Um, Sort of des- destruction of a phallic symbol. You know, it's the <laughs> it's the key to mm-hmm. Jamie's um, to Jamie's inherited estate, and he gives it. He destroys it and gives it to Claire uh, as a sign of his sort of pledge of loyalty to her. Um, but the same the same ring um, appears later on uh, in a scene where um, in season I think season four, uh, where Claire is threatened by um, the villain who sort of replaces. Black Jack Randall and Stephen Bonnet. And in that scene, he tries to steal uh, the 18th century wedding ring from her and also the ring that she wears that is to do with her husband, Frank, in the 20th century. Uh, And she swallows both of the rings um, in that scene. And so, again, we're sort of treated to this um, strange and discomforting embodied experience in a moment of of sort of terror uh, in which material culture is is really central. Um, And the same rings appear later on um, when Brianna sees that Stephen Bonnet has one of the rings, uh, Brianna being Claire and Jamie's uh, daughter. And um, Brianna's attempts to get the ring back end with her being attacked by Bonnet. Um, and so, while the rings sort of take on, the, the, their meaning
0: shift throughout the, the stories, really. Outlander also has quite a large fandom, one that's even global in reach. And this fandom has resulted in a material culture of its own, which is evidenced by the range of Outlander merchandise that's available in museum gift shops, for example. Why do you think fans have become so emotionally and politically invested in the material representations of Scotland that are depicted in this show? Mm. Well, there's, there's this really huge array of
2: objects available you know, to buy commercially that relate to both the Outlander books and the TV show. Um And fans can buy these things online, but also, and this is, you know, particularly interesting that they can buy them in museum gift shops uh, in Scotland in particular. So to give some examples of things that as a fan you can buy, um, people have bought uh, replicas of Claire and Jamie's wedding rings for their own weddings, uh, which is fascinating for many reasons, but not least because, you know, like you say, people are investing emotionally in the material world of the show. Um, but, you know, there's other things like um, sort of Claire and Jamie colouring books and that kind of thing. Um, but this this idea of sort of emotional investment, it ties back to ideas within the internal Outlander universe where objects are, you know, specifically tied to embodied experience. So fans can buy jewellery and costumes uh, that replicate those on screen, but also... Um, this is just great. Uh, there are other products like um, the Sassanac Whiskey uh, produced by Sam Heughan, uh, who plays Jamie, uh, and not by the stars production, its company itself. Um, but, you know, something like that actually enables fans to literally consume something relating to the fictional world of Outlander itself, which is, is just, you know, sort of, I think, a really, really unusual. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly not unique, in terms of the material cultures of of TV and film fandom, but it's it's a really fascinating expansion from the show itself out into a commercial market.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just thinking about the Sassanat whiskey, there are also um, Outlander cookbooks, which uh, <laughs> sort of follow the the world of Outlander from you know the Scottish Highlands uh, over to colonial America, and. The recipes which are contained within these books relate to you know certain characters and certain events, so it's sort of like you're eating along with the show, um, which I, I just find quite fascinating. It's also important to note that the materialisation of fandom is nothing new. So literary tourism was a significant aspect of the romanticisation of the East Scottish Highlands, its people and its past during the later 18th and early 19th centuries. The poems and novels of Sir Walter Scott and Robert Burns, for example, generated a material culture of their own. To give examples from the collection at National Museum Scotland, consumers could purchase printed furniture fabric showing scenes from Scott's Lady of the Lake, or by tartan-covered snuff boxes and pincushions featuring a drawing of Scott's home at Abbotsford. So what we're seeing in the Outlander fandom can be interpreted as a 21st century incarnation of that emotional drive to forge a personal connection through the population of our own material world.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, and I had no idea that there was so much material that you can purchase that really models the Outlander world. So thanks for filling us in on that. But unfortunately, we're running to the end of time here, so I just wanted to ask a last question about how your research on material culture in Outlander has implications for the representation of history and popular media more broadly. So how does your work advance the study of the 18th century on screen, and what might historians learn about material culture and modern portrayals of the past through the example of Outlander?
1: So, from my point of view, as a museum professional and as a historian, it is our responsibility to engage critically with this kind of media as a form of popular history telling. Outlander has become undeniably a global sensation, drawing viewers towards Scottish history and culture, often for the first time. It's also a great stimulus for the heritage industry and heritage tourism in Scotland. But thinking about how museums engage with the public, can we in good conscience shy away from something that has become such a cultural touchstone? You know, we have displays in our galleries to do with Sir Walter Scott's Waverley and its impact is it unreasonable to think that Outlander might not have that kind of popular legacy? And should we be thinking about how we need to engage with this material critically and how we can present it to the public so that they themselves can engage with it critically? I do think it, it is too easy sometimes for academics to dismiss this kind of material as, as frivolous, uh, when in a lot of ways it, it is anything but.
2: Yeah. I mean, I suppose more generally, uh, we could say that you know scholarly interest in the depiction of history on screen is increasing, um, and you know we hope that our collaboration is going to make a small contrib- contribution to this you know relatively uh, new and exciting field. Um, for many, film and TV is like Rosie says, you know, sort of first encounter that people have with a historic period, and so as we've said already, historians you know do have a responsibility to engage with these sort of multimedia. Um, texts, not just in terms of their supposed inaccuracies or accuracy, um, but you know, perhaps more generously by asking questions about which histories are being shown on screen and why they're be showing they're you know being shown in that way, um, and at, at which moment. So, in the case of Outlander, of course, while well, you get this really interesting sort of feminist reading of gender in the eighteenth century the show's representation of people of color for example and uh, specifically uh, enslaved africans and indigenous people in the later series you know it could be criticized as not going far enough so for example you know for a show that positions material culture so emphatically on screen uh, we see very little of the fabric and the material and the sort of embodied repercussions of slavery so we need to be asking you know why certain shows do well at particular moments in our own time and how they might be speaking to or, you know, or failing to speak to uh, contemporary political and cultural issues. And in the case of Outlander in particular, um, the Cameron administration actually allegedly tried to get the show off the air in Scotland during the run-up to the Scottish referendum. So far from being characterised in terms of, you know, frilly bonnets and country houses, the costume drama has very real and very
0: tangible impact on our lives. Thank you so much, Maddie and Rosie, for what was a really fascinating discussion. And I certainly hope that this helps anybody who already loves and watches the show or people who are thinking about watching it to really engage with it more critically and to analyze the things that you've talked about in today's episode. So thanks again to both of you for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to December's episode of the Research in Scottish History podcast. As I mentioned previously, this will be the last episode for just a little while, but I do hope to be back soon with new research. In the meantime, please stay in touch on Twitter and follow along for any future updates. See you soon.